0: You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists.
1: Hi everyone, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 44. This is Jennifer. I am your host and I am joined today by Taylor Monroe. She is going to talk to us about permaculture. Um but before we do that, I want to apologize for the delay in getting our next episode out. I know um we usually do a monthly show and if you're a regular listener, you may have heard in the last episode that I recently moved across the world to Ireland and life just kind of caught up with me and um I didn't get the October show out, so Apologies for that, but we're here with a new show, and we're excited to jump back in. So um, let's get started and learn about permaculture. Um, Taylor is the owner and co-director of the Austin Permaculture Guild, and uh, I'm going to let her kind of talk about how she got into this line of work, what they do, and then um, just tell us what even is permaculture.
0: Yeah. Um, How did I get here? That's a fun question. I'll try not to go too into depth. Um, but I grew up kind of standard American suburbia. Um, I always loved nature. I always loved being outside, but my family didn't have a specific like environmental tilt to it or anything like that. You know, we ate standard American diet, fast food, all the stuff, very normal kind of standard lifestyle. Um, Then I began working for Greenpeace at the beginning of college and it just kind of Blew my mind as to where all of our food is coming from, manufacturing, and just stuff like the boreal forest being torn down to make our toilet paper, so we wipe our butts with old growth trees. And it just was kind of like, whoa, what? There's so many things wrong with our system, and I was totally ignorant to it. How has this was even happening? So that happened, and then um, I was I graduated from college in 2011, and um, my two roommates, who I was going to be roommates with right after that, they spent six weeks doing a permaculture design course intensive at Upper Vetcho in Oregon. And I actually had spent that same month in Guatemala. So we came back and moved in together immediately after that. So we all had all this energy and um, they wanted to start a permaculture community. And I had never even heard of permaculture before. But of course, they told me about it and really in-depth about it. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the answer to everything. Why isn't everyone doing this all the time? So, you know, I was like, let's do it. I'm down. Like, let's make this happen. So we happened to be renting this house on 22 acres in downtown San Marcos, Texas. And um, yeah, we did it. So it was really funny though. They didn't end up staying very long, but I ended up running this permaculture uh, intentional community called Sacred Roots um, for three years. And we had work traders and it was a community, you know, we had work traders living there and people camping and we were doing workshops and all these things constantly. Um, And during that time, I also began working for Austin Permaculture Guild. I was originally just the admin and publicity hub. And now I've, you know, (laughs) moved up a lot because everybody that was working with it left, basically. Um, They were just older and moved and things. And um, 13 years before I started. um, Yeah, so it just became my life. I kind of just went all the way in with permaculture from the very beginning. Um, I also, Lived at the Whole Life Learning Center, which is an incredible place. And that's now our home base. That's in South Austin. Um, There's a nursery there as well called Cultivate. I learned so much from Caroline Riley, who's still currently one of my closest friends and mentors. you know, I did all kinds of things. I started uh, working with this group doing perma blitzes where we installed food forests and berms and swales, um, which I can explain more about that in a minute, what that is. Um, at, we, there was all volunteer run, so I did that for three years, um, working with Kirby Fry doing that. And I learned so much and really enjoyed the process of, of organizing all of that. It came to be a lot, but it was really beautiful when it was going on. Um, To now, where I'm running Austin Permaculture Guild, we teach one permaculture design course per year right now. Um, It's in the works to do an intensive, two-week intensive, which we used to do every year, but stopped a few years ago. We might do one next year. People are really wanting more PDCs, um, which is a permaculture design course. Um, So I teach And then I also do permaculture design and installation full time. Um, So that looks like me going out to my clients' houses or churches, communities, whatever. I mostly do residential, but I do public stuff, uh, vineyards and stuff like that too. Um, Doing a consultation with them, seeing what's going on with the property and building a design plan for them. And most of the time we do an install with, with these clients as well. So I have my own crew and, They do all that. And um, to your last question, what is permaculture? Um, It's really a large body of knowledge. So it's hard to even cover in a single podcast, but kind of like elevator speech. It's um, a system for sustainable design. So it's about connecting things together. It's about relationships. Where do the things that we participate in and need in our daily lives, where do those energy systems connect? You know, so there's a lot of crazy language in permaculture too. So if you're ever like studying it or researching stuff, you'll be like, what on earth are these people talking about? (laughs) Sometimes. And so to, to put it some more basic examples of like what are the waste streams from um the things you're participating in every day so for instance like when you're eating food you know there's a ton of waste that you create when cooking a meal where does that food go usually that's looked at as a um, that's a problem right something you have to get rid of and it's gross or whatever but in permaculture we look at that as a resource that's nitrogen that's carbon that's food for the soil that's food for the microbes and so of course we would compost all of that material um there's actually a saying in permaculture there is no such thing as waste because you can reuse everything um also things like water, right? There's so much water wasted. Just catching rainwater, using it for um, your gardens. Inside your house is actually really ideal. Um, it's a really beautiful source of water. It feels a lot better on your skin than city water, well water. Um, and of course the plants love it. It's more acidic um, and particularly in our area where we have more alkaline, we have alkaline leaning soils. Um, the plant babies really appreciate and established plants to appreciate that acidic rainwater Um, and of course it's like direct from the source that's how plants usually receive water is from the sky so it has certain properties um, that they really love so yeah there's just a little (laughs) bit there about what permaculture is about Um, so it's really um,
1: trying to just live as efficiently as possible mm -hmm. and using as little resources as you can the ultimate environmental goal right
0: (laughs) totally it is really ultimate and it's kind of overwhelming for people sometimes just because there's so many variables to think about um and it really is a, a design science as well so a lot of it is asking a lot of questions you know of like where of of going out to a piece of property and being able to read what is happening in the ecosystem there. um, What are the factors at play and how does that tie into how we can use the space as efficiently as possible, as gently as possible? Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, I know you
1: said that there's a lot of different facets of permaculture, but let's kind of drill into, I guess, food production to start, because I know that's a lot of times what people think of when they hear permaculture. Um, so can can you talk a little bit about that? And, um, I mean, I hear things like food forest and zones and, um, all these different terms you know, and how, how do these interplay and kind of build a
0: permaculture food system? Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about food. And of course, food is what drew me to permaculture in the first place. I'm totally obsessed with food. I love to cook. And that's was the most shocking thing for me when I was working for Greenpeace was where food comes from and what it's made out of. So that's definitely one of the, the areas within permaculture that I have studied the most and what I focus on is food. So I'm glad you asked that. Um, yeah, let's start with food forest. So that's definitely a super hip, catchy phrase right now. Um, and it can be defined a few different ways. But in my mind, an ideal food forest and our climate in particular, which it's going to vary depending on which climate you're in, but um, it starts off with berms and swales. So all of our food is dependent. The The diversity and abundance of the food that we're growing is very dependent on the soil. So we have to think about the soil first um, as kind of the base, right? And so, in an ideal world, um, it starts out with berms and swales. I mean, it depends on the property, but usually that's a good platform for planting trees. So what what's a berm and swale? So imagine, it's hard to just explain this verbally, but I'll do the best I can. So imagine a ditch, dug on contour so it's all perfectly level that means that it's perpendicular to the flow of water so if you can imagine water coming downhill and being intercepted by this ditch and filling up with water and then the material that you dig out when you're digging this ditch goes on the downhill side and that is what's called the berm, and that berm is also on contour. And so, what you're doing with this system is not only are you providing this kind of freshly turned soil, which definitely helps out um, for planting trees and other plants that I'll talk about in just a second, um, but you're passively catching water that's flowing down the surface of the ground um and so that way you're going to have a lot more success because it's going to get a lot more water um for the lifetime of these plants so that's that's an ideal basis for a food forest um and then in terms of the layers of the food forest there's seven layers um and that's just mimicking i mean there's you could even draw the layers further or condense them a little bit and do less than seven layers. Um, but that's from the classified layers in a forest. So we're mimicking nature and how nature's systems naturally function. And we're pulling that out and using that same set of information, that same structure for our human-made systems. So a, f- a forest specifically created for Use by us humans and not just wildlife and whatnot. So, replacing all, almost all of those plants would be in a forest with food producing plants. So, the first layer is trees, right? And so, these are going to be fruit trees, um, which are really nice because they're a very abundant um, perennial food that you plant. And it's once it becomes established and starts producing fruit. You don't really have to do, I mean, permaculture takes a lot of work, okay, just want to say that at the onset, but it takes a lot less work to have the super abundant fruit tree than tending annual plants every single season. Um, So you have your fruit tree, you have your small tree layer, which honestly, let's rewind a minute. If you're going to be really technical, large tree layers, things like pecans, walnuts, any kind of nuts is the like climax tree layer and then your small trees really are your fruit tree layer um and then you have shrubs and so these are things like blackberries um pineapple guava things like that um and then you have so you have your shrub layer and then you have your vegetative layer which is like an even smaller plant so Is like your herbaceous layer is another name for it um And for me, when I'm plugging things in, this is going to be all of our perennial kitchen herbs um, and medicinal herbs. So things like oregano, sage, rosemary, um, thyme, um, echinacea, um, lemon balm, lemongrass is kind of slash herbaceous. Um, And these are all things you can plant in Central Texas and many other places too. Um, And you have your binding layer as well, um, which you can bring up the trees so you can also put trellis and of course things like passion fruit um, hardy kiwi um, and then you have your fungal layer as well and so that's really important to uh, feed there's a certain type of fungus called mycorrhizal fungi Um, mycorrhizal fungi (laughs) just so that everyone gets that Um, and that's a fungus that's been discovered that is symbiotic with the plant's roots um, and it will highly benefit the plant I could go off on fungus for this whole podcast but I won't I'll just be real quick but um, fungus is basically like the heart or the brain of plants and trees um, mostly woody plants Um, and they are like little nutrient highways that are pulling nutrients out of the soil and bringing them to the roots of the trees and the plants. they're pretty incredible, and they're also really great at breaking down organic matter and turning it into food for those plants as well. So um, this explains why you see so many mushrooms growing on trees and around trees. Yeah, they're almost always symbiotic. Of course, there are bad funguses that happen, but usually only those come in in molds and things like that. But usually, those only come in if there's not a a healthy population of that biology down in the of bacteria, beneficial bacteria and fungus down in the soil. Um, so, if you have a health, healthy population of these beneficial fungus and bacteria, then you're not going to see too many problems with the bad guys. Um, another really important piece in food forests um, is the dynamic accumulators. I'll say that one more time. Dynamic accumulators, and these are, which is another Permy word. Um, these are really special plants that pull de- that have really deep roots, and they pull up minerals from deep down in the soil and make them available to the plants around them. Um, And these end up being super medicinal plants as well, and they're almost all pollinators too. So we try to put as many plants in there that have as many functions as possible. So dynamic accumulators, this category is just like a super powerhouse category for for our gardens. And so these are things like yarrow, comfrey, dandelion, purslane, all super medicinal plants. So um, even if you just have a small garden, including those in there is super beneficial. And of course, in our modern diets, that's one of the biggest things that we have missing is minerals. Um, So I regularly make teas and salves and all kinds of yummy things from all these different dynamic accumulator plants because they're super powerful and vital. And you can use them for composting too, which is awesome. In biodynamic gardening um, for their soil preparations, they use um, a whole big list of dynamic accumulators they put into their compost to put those minerals back down into the soil as well. Um, there's also, if I on this question, if I, I could keep going with the annual plants, <laughs> So another whole category is annual plants, right? So food forests kind of delineate a perennial plant system, basically. So, and just to, if there's any, you know, beginners out there, I can define these two words real quick because you might not know what they mean. Perennial means a plant that lives for three or more years. um, So three to 3000 years. And an annual plant is generally a plant that lives one season um, up to a year and then biennial, which I won't use as much, that word as much, but that's a plant that will, the life of the plant is two years or less. So, um, okay. So food forest, perennial plant systems, and then annual planting systems is really where we see the bulk of our, um, vegetables and fruits that you see in the grocery store, mostly veggies. There's a bunch of perennial uh, fruits, but. and so, these are things like broccoli, onions, tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, cauliflower, zucchini, you know, like all the classic foods that you see in the store. And so, you can really produce the a lot more food, like a, a larger quantity of food faster with annual systems, but they're a lot more energy intensive. Um, so... You know, not everybody is partial to gardening and has time to be gardening all the time. So I do really promote, especially within my business, perennial systems because it's a lot less maintenance um, and it can look really beautiful and stay that way for a long time, which people really like. It's kind of like edible landscaping that I do. But if you really want to grow a lot of your own food and you're really committed to that, then annual gardening is definitely super helpful. And within that, you know, the kind of permaculture way that I definitely promote is through companion planting. So, you know, a lot of people, especially even in organic gardening, you're planting a whole bunch of the same plant in one little area. And I often see in organic gardening, no mulch too. So a different system for for that annual gardening is, I know this sounds simple, but it's one little thing that can highly improve the successful nature of your plantings is adding mulch. It can be wood mulch, it can be straw without seed in it, it can be pine straw, um, but it's going to significantly improve Um, Any kind of planting system that you have, but so having mulch and then also companion planting is mimicking nature. So out in nature, there is, it might look like there's one plant in a single area, but then if you look deeper, you'll see there's a whole bunch of different plant types all in one spot. Um, And so that's really the basis of companion planting um is just switching it up and putting a whole bunch of different types of plants all in one space instead of just a single type of plant is that diversifies that space it diversifies the biology down in the soil because all plants are symbiotic with a certain type of bacteria or fungus um annual plants in general in these types of systems they Um, generally are more symbiotic with bacteria, which are also hugely important. So adding things like compost every single time you plant um, is going to inoculate that bacteria down in the soil. Um, There's a really cool chart. I don't know if you send resources to your group, but I have a companion planting chart that I send to all my students. Um, And it is for our area, but Um, I'm sure plenty of these veggies are used all over the world. Just if you're not in Austin, just look up a planting calendar for your area so that you know when to plant all these things. That's really the main difference in different climates is the when, um, but all of these different companion planting, uh, rules will apply no matter where you're at. Yeah, Um, we can, uh, we
1: always share links in our show notes, so we can share the link to that and then also, um, encourage folks to look in their regions as well.
0: Okay. Super cool. So yeah, what these, what happens when you mix up the arrangement of these plantings is not only does it diversify the biology, but it diversifies and increases the nutrient density of your plants as well, um, which is really powerful. And then it also um, creates... um, a better immune system for those plants so that they're a lot hardier than they would be if they were all just planted just like a whole row of broccoli or whatever, you know, if they if it's all intermixed in um then they're a lot more resilient to pests and diseases and things like that too. Um, So you have a much more resilient overall garden with companion planting, mulching, watering regularly, of course, which I know is silly, but that's important too. Um I'm a big fan of drip irrigation. (laughs) Yeah. Make sure they get watered.
1: Yeah, I think uh, monocultures are one of the biggest travesties of the modern food system because, I mean, like you said, they don't mimic nature. They just leave thousands of the same plant together. And they have, you know, I mean, nature isn't made to exist like that. Nature, that's why you get weeds. (laughs) That's right. And mixed
0: up. (laughs) The only way those systems exist is in a place where I mean, it's like the moon. If you go out there, like there's no other plant life on the soil. There's, of course, no mulch. They're spraying um, Roundup everywhere. Because of course, since it's not a natural system, Mother Nature is trying to come in and cover the soil with all these weeds. Um, They're spraying. Uh, so they're they're spraying that herbicide, they're roundup, they're spraying fungicides because of course they don't have healthy biology down in the soil that's giving the plants nutrient density either. So they're even though they're growing a ton of food, it's really low in minerals and nutrient density in general. Um, and so it's just it's a horrible system. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well and I'm guessing permaculture does not use chemicals or um additives
0: I guess like that <laughs> no and so it's definitely a more proactive approach so while I have used things in the past like pepper spray like making my own um pest deterrence out of Fresh peppers and garlic, and I've used a BT a little bit, but I don't even use that anymore. It's supposed to disturb your stomach lining because um, it it literally liquefies the stomachs of the bugs, mm-hmm. uh, of the slugs and things like that. Yeah. Um, what else? I mean, yeah, I don't even use stuff like that anymore. Even though I've made some, some of these kind of more organic pest deterrents, um, it's really more proactive approach. You know, spraying compost tea, um, feeding the soil with Seaweed and um, worm castings. And I mean, there's so many different things you can use as long as you're increasing the biology, the bacteria and the fungus down in the soil, you're going to have super healthy plants um, that, aren't, that are not that are going to be more resistant to, z- to diseases, um, if not completely resistant um, and are going to be beautiful and get big and green um and not have all these crazy issues another thing that you can do too if you have a lot of pests is um supplementing with silica um there's a really wonderful plant um that's super high in silica gosh i am so funny i'm very uh horsetail there we go i, I thought i was going to forget the name of it horsetail is super high in silica and you can make a compost tea with that and apply it regularly and that um hardens the bodies of the plant and makes them super resistant to pests and so there's all kinds of things like that that are more of a proactive approach than like oh there's bugs let's kill them you know it's like (laughs) um offense instead of defense kind of situation yeah
1: well and sometimes it's just a matter of um you got to share right make make a little
0: more so the bugs
1: the pests can have some and then you still have enough left over for you
0: (laughs) that's true too and that's how it is with fruit with yeah people get really upset even too like about other pests like squirrels and birds and stuff eating your fruits and it's like well plan enough for the wildlife and you don't have to worry about it (laughs) (laughs) that's definitely a strategy that I encourage because we want to we want the wildlife to be happy too, because they're certainly contributing to the system at large for yeah. sure. Like for instance, birds carry um, symbiotic bacteria on their feet. And so if they're landing in your garden, that's going increase, to increase the diversity of bacteria in, in the soil. So yeah, there's all kinds of little things like that.
1: Well, so while we're talking about birds, I know that Chickens can be a big part of uh, food systems in permaculture. So, what role do
0: chickens play? Absolutely. And are they are they
1: necessary for a successful system, or can you
0: you know you sure. manage without? Them? I think it's important to have animals in your system, no matter what. And that doesn't mean you have to be eating animals necessarily. Well, I mean, I do, but you can still have animals in the system even if you're not actually. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, you can still do that. but yeah, animals are super play a super key role to the connected nature of these permaculture systems for sure um and the chicken is a perfect example of this, and we even have this fun little diagram that called permaculture chicken and it lays out all of the different things that you can utilize by having chickens on a property so we can just kind of go through that real quick. You know one of the first things you can do um, If you're thinking about adding a certain piece to your system, like chickens or rabbits or goats or, you know, a flower bed or whatever it is, is identifying what is useful about that element. And so with chickens, what are they providing us? You know, they're providing eggs for sure. um, Feathers, um, heat, their bodies create heat, Um, poop, their poop is super high in nitrogen has to be composted first, um, but it's an excellent fertilizer once it's composted. Um, What else do chickens produce? Meat. Um, So there's all these kind of things. It's like, if you're not utilizing those resources, it's kind of like wasted energy, right? Um, That's how we think of it. And so they also scratch a lot um, and then they eat compost. Too. They they eat leftover foods. Um, not all co- not all foods, but a lot of different things. So, um, they're really useful for if you don't you know for a part of your composting system. Um, so you can just toss your compost scraps there in the chicken yard. Um they're really great at eating bugs. Um so eating pests. Um so you can have chicken tractors. I don't recommend so there's some permaculture videos out there, they're like stick your chickens in the garden and whatever. And it's like <laughs> don't do that they will destroy your garden so that is a bad plan um if you have like an orchard like an established orchard or food forest totally but an annual garden definitely not they will eat it all (laughs) but if if you're turning your garden bed over for the season and you're going to clear it out so that you can plant new plants then putting them in there is a great idea because they're doing that work for you they'll eat all the the plants down to the nub which is what you want. You don't want to pull all the roots out of your garden because all of that organic matter of the of root ball there is really great food for the soil. Um, so even if you're doing it yourself, it's better to cut it, cut your plants at the base when you clear it out. But anyway, back to chickens. Um, they'll also till it up a little bit just at the surface. It's really not best to till your garden too much but it is helpful to have them just kind of scratch it a little bit. Um, And they'll eat any kind of pests that happen to be lingering around as well, which is really cool. Um, And they're entertaining. That can't be discounted. (laughs) (laughs) They're fun to watch. (laughs) Yeah. we, You know, with permaculture, I really like to keep it fun and keep it, real in terms of like what humans really need like the full spectrum of what we need it's like yeah we need food water shelter energy all this stuff but it's like we need to have fun too to really thrive in this life and so you know I really encourage my students when laying out a permaculture design to put in there like what are your hobbies what are your activities that you really enjoy and making sure that those are included in your design plan because you need those things too Um, but yeah so listing entertainment as an output I feel like is super valid especially if you have kids, <laughs> For sure. Yeah.
1: Well, so I, I know um, a lot of people listening may live in the city or not have access to land where they can have chickens or even acres and acres to bake, make a food forest. So is something like this still accessible to those folks or does it have to be big scale? Can it be just, you know, a front yard
0: garden or something? Of course. And I get that question a lot. And I think that's a great question is like, how much, whatever do you have to have to participate in permaculture? And it's like, you can live in a condo in downtown and you can still have permaculture in your life. And once you get into the philosophy of it, there's these things not only apply to like tending a garden, but also kind of the philosophy of life. And so there's all these ethics and principles that we abide by. Um, So there's the three permaculture ethics are earth care, people care, and future care. Um, which the third ethic has many different names. That's my favorite one, though. There's also fair share and return the surplus, is another name for that third ethic. Um, but when we, you know, go out and do anything in the world, it's like, okay, you think about those three ethics first. Like, how is this affecting my community? How is this affecting me? Um, how is this affecting the earth? And how am I going to be creating abundance and sh- giving back um, when I'm participating in this certain thing? Um, and then there's so many different principles, too. I'm not going to say them all but some of them are like creatively react and respond to change you know um Diversify. So, just having diversity. So, even like in a business sense, like not putting all of your eggs in one basket, you know, it's about being resilient. So, any way that we can fortify our systems, which doesn't even have to be growing food, it can be financial systems, it can be relationships. Any way that you can diversify and fortify those things is going to make you more resilient and more able to creatively react and respond to change. Um, And, you know, there's other cute ones like that are really effective though like the problem is the solution you know so for instance like your house is flooding oh god this water is horrible it's destroying my house but at the same time that water is a huge resource so if you can figure out how to divert the water effectively and pour it into a garden now you have this huge resource for growing food so you know Yeah, so that's that in terms of like philosophically (laughs) practicing permaculture. But in terms of like specific strategies, if you specifically do want to go out and grow your own food, there's community gardens community plots even if you live in an apartment you know talk to the managers the management and maybe you can start a community garden there on site things like that maybe your friend has some land that they're not using and you can go out there and do experiments and practice there you know um, in terms of just our daily life activities and what we're choosing to participate in we can make a massive impact On our environment and on our own bodies, just from sourcing things locally. So, specifically with food, like I don't grow all my own food, but I'm really hardcore about either tapping into the waste stream and getting food that way or buying all the rest of my food locally. And not only is that better for our bodies, but it's you know, tremendously better for the local economy, for the farmers, for the environment, for all of those things. And it's just one of those little tweaks. It does take some work, of course, but it's one of those little tweaks that just makes such a massive impact. And, you know, not only with food, but other things that you choose. Things like Amazon, you know, like, you don't have to buy everything on there. You can look up like you know, different sourcings for things that come from nearby instead of really far away. Um, and so there's all kinds of little things like that that you can do um, that make a big, big, big impact. But, you know, you're still participating in permaculture when you're doing all those things, that's for sure. So.
1: Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't and have to be funny. this big statement of a visible garden that yeah. I've spent all this time, you know, building. It can be, yeah. like you said, just your everyday mindset or how you live your life. and
0: Absolutely. And of course things. the garden part is super fun and um, is a statement. And if you can do that and you have a yard, do it. And even if you have a teeny tiny yard, you can, you grow a lot of food in some really small spaces. Even if you have an apartment balcony, um, you can still even grow food there. You know, you can at least have kitchen herbs and things like that. So, yeah,
1: yeah. well, you, yeah. you kind of touched on something uh, I was going to ask about, which is, um, rainwater capture. And I know that's a big part of the system. Um, if you're trying to reuse what nature is giving us. And um, also, like you said, it's it's better for the plants. So how does what does that look like? I mean, are you collecting it in giant bins? Or are you diverting it from the, the ditch that you dug or a little bit of both right. maybe?
0: Right. So in permaculture design, all of the vital resources, it's ideal to have three sources of those elements on your property to be as resilient as possible. So water in particular, just to go back to the beginning here with this question. um, So water in particular, um, you can have rainwater catchment for sure as one of your um, sources of water, but it is still beneficial to have well water Um, city water, maybe you have a spring on your property, which is awesome. Ponds are a source of water, um, creeks, um, lakes, streams, rivers, all these different things. Um, but in terms of rainwater specifically, I would say it's really, other than a natural spring on your property, um, that's definitely the very best source of water for growing food. And, um, You need, so there's a, there's a million and one ways that you can catch rainwater. The most basic way is to have a water holding device of any kind. It could be a bucket. It could be a wheelbarrow. I mean, anything and just sticking it at a corner of your roof. I know a farmer that doesn't have any piping or any, um, gutters or anything like that he just has all these huge plastic totes and tubs and stuff and he's like a legit farmer with the csa and he explicitly uses rainwater and does it like that <laughs> which is crazy honestly i don't want to do that but yeah. i am highly impressed that he is doing that and he's been committed to it in his maneuver for a really long time so he's got his system down um, but in an ideal world you would have a structure with gutters on it and then would have rainwater cisterns whether that's Um, A poly tank or a stainless steel is the best, but they're really expensive, but that's an awesome way to do it. Ferro cement is another catchment type that's really affordable that you can build yourself. Um, And then, you know, ideally, like if I was designing out a system for somebody, I would put a ton of water catchment. If you're like a family of four, probably need 15, 20,000 gallons of water catchment that you're running inside your house delicious water to drink. It feels amazing on your body. Um, So it's really great to run it inside the house first and then have your gray water that's coming out of the house go to your orchards and then you can just tap up to the drip with a pump um, straight up to the tank for all of your other annual vegetables and things like that. And that's definitely an ideal way to do it for sure. So
1: well, this makes me feel a little more validated for being that crazy person that had buckets lined up under her like like you said where the roof ends and
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I would just catch the rain and, and water my plants outside with it. Um
0: super functional. Free water, yeah. Yeah, free water. It's free. It's I will I will say though,
1: depending on where you live, check and make sure that's allowed because
0: I, I've heard yeah. in some places it's illegal
1: to Colorado. Rainwater.
0: Yeah. Colorado, I think. Florida, don't quote me on that, could have changed. But yeah, definitely look it up first. Um but catching it in buckets <laughs> Yeah know, at your own risk, but I'm sure that's probably fine. Yeah. But before you install a huge catchment system, even in Colorado, you can do it. You just have to get a permit first. Okay. It's not like always yeah, so Check your like local regulations, you to,
1: your city, you yeah. Go through the, yeah,
0: go through the city and the county and things like that first. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: anything else you want to add uh, when it comes to the food system or anything we've talked about so
0: far? One little thing I was thinking um, about the food growing situation is um, if you get into gardening, just one little tip is it doesn't have to be perfect. And there's all these kinds of little rules and things that I laid out, but it's better just to get out there if you've never done it before and just try it because you have an opportunity every single season to do it differently. And you're going to learn something every time. So just try not to get overwhelmed and doing something imperfectly is better than doing nothing. So I just want to say that (laughs) and empower you to go out there (laughs) and do it. So, yeah. yeah.
1: And remember that even if something dies or you do something wrong, it's a learning experience. I had to tell myself that a lot. Yeah, Yeah, you'll be (laughs) fine. That's right. I know what not to do next time.
0: That's right, exactly. (laughs)
1: Um, Okay, well, let's move on, I guess, to some of the other um, aspects of permaculture that we've kind of touched on a little, uh, as far as, you know, things like shelter and energy. Um, And you've Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about this, but what are some permaculture, you know, practices in these areas
0: as well. Yeah, shelter and energy. These are great subjects and big ones. And most people don't have the opportunity to participate at per- with permaculture at this level because it takes a lot of resources to be able to build your own house and choose where your energy comes from and things like that but if you have the ability to do that I mean it absolutely makes a huge impact on your way of life um, and of course on the environment as well <clears throat> but there's a whole bunch of different building styles that are definitely um a more habitable situation for humans and also where the resources come from nearby. So things like cob, which is made out of clay sand and straw is probably my very favorite building material. Um, it's really easy to work with too for beginners, but I definitely highly recommend if you're you know, building a house, definitely seek counsel and guidance, if not full on hire a professional. Um, but yeah, so cob is one method, straw bale, um for the insulation instead of you know that nasty spray stuff or the fiberglass stuff um straw bale is definitely a better form of insulation um what else um timber framing from locally sourced timber instead of just getting it from home depot is definitely a, a good idea wood is a sustainable resource but um definitely paying attention to where it comes from is better a lot better. (laughs) So that's something Um, there's other little tweaks you can do, but it really depends on the climate that you're in. So for instance, here, if you're in a hot climate, um, orienting your house so that the longest part of your house is directly east to west. um, So that it gets hit. The the walls get hit by the sun, the least amount when the sun is traveling Mm. east to west, Um, putting all your windows on the south side of the house, barely putting any windows on the west and the north side putting them yeah focusing more on the east and the south side um, and you know if you're in a cool climate um, it would be different <laughs> so if you're in a cold climate you know and it's cold most of the year maybe you want to put you do the opposite so that you do have exposure to the south and the west and have big windows on the west side so that you get the benefit of that really hot western sun in the afternoon to heat up your house. Here in Texas, you know, we get (laughs) eight or nine months of hot weather. So, you know, we're always trying to mitigate that. But um, what else? Um, Yeah, so those are some different building styles. Um, In terms of energy, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can Receive your energy. Um, There's little tweaks that you do and big things that you can do. Um, In particular, like a little bitty thing that you can do is like here in Austin, you can choose to have your energy sourced uh, from wind power instead of from you know, uh, natural gas or coal. Right. And so you can check into your local energy provider and just see if there's a lot of times they don't offer it and they don't tell you. Um, so that's something you can do. Um, of course, having solar power, um, power, your huge <laughs> really great loans for people these days. Um, at the super low interest rates so if you own your home that's a really great thing that you can do that isn't too isn't really that much of an extra cost they basically trade out your electricity bill for your uh, payment on your loan so it doesn't it just kind of evens out which is really awesome Um, if you have the ability to put your solar array off of your house i definitely recommend that that's a good thing to do is to have the array on the ground Um, what other kind of crazy energy things are there? There's this, there's these really cool things called biodigesters. digesters. um, And what you do is you put all of your waste in there, um, specifically if you have um, ungulates, so like cows, horses, things like that, you can put all of their waste in there, all human waste and it produces methane um, and that produces gas for cooking, for heating. Um, and of course it also creates compost as well. Um, so there's systems that you can buy now, biodigester systems that you can buy and install yourself on your homestead. And so that's a really powerful thing to do. Um, I didn't really mean that as a pun, but it is, I guess. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) And yeah, I I I think I remember you mentioning in a previous talk, Something about um, if you live near a cliff, you can I was about to talk create about that. something oh. that falls down yeah. the side yeah. of the cliff.
0: <laughs> yeah, so there's something called a tromp T-R-O-M-P, and you need a high cliff. I think it needs to be like 20 or 30 feet high. And there's basically this tube that you pump water through, and it has all these like tiny, tiny little straws basically throughout the whole tube. And what it does is it creates air uh, bubbles. And those air bubbles translate into pneumatic energy. So if you have any pneumatic tools, you can power with that. Um, You can also um, get adapters and change like air conditioners and generators and things like that into pneumatic sourcing and power them that way. So that's another really cool, unique energy thing that you can do. Um, There are people too that build things that don't have cliffs if you're really into creating a system like that. Um, it's a pretty cool way to charge your tools. <laughs>
1: like, gotta definitely. go climb at the
0: top of this cliff and drop. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's fun. And
1: yeah.
0: like, if you, if you use tools a lot, a lot of them are pneumatic. So, you know, if you're using power tools, like, well, you can pretty much always get a pneumatic version of that. those. So, yeah. It's okay. pretty convenient.
1: So pretty creative <laughs> ways to... Uh, source your energy and and live in general um and i mean even if the environmental impact wasn't there it's it's just neat to see you know how interesting it is
0: yeah and i mean it's really empowering too to know that all of your energy and all of your food and all of your water you know you're producing yourself and this is you know from you you know it's like if these systems die or Stop working. You know how to fix it. You know it's not like you know. I don't know who all on here is in Austin, but we had this crazy freeze in February, and a lot of people lost power and water. You know, and it's like if you have your own system, you don't have to rely on the government to provide that for you, and you don't have to worry about your power and water turning. Oh, you do have to worry it worry about it really kind of more than usual because you're maintaining the systems, but at the same time, you you have confidence that they're not gonna. Mm -hmm. Um, which is really I think just really empowering Um, and on that note too I mean waste systems that's a huge one is people don't like to talk about human waste a lot um, but it's actually a huge resource and is definitely very integral in permaculture design is figuring out how we can reuse waste so humanure is definitely a common um it's a human composting system. So you're basically like pooping in a bucket and taking the bucket out and, um, you have a human compost system and, um, it's actually really functional. Um, if you want to check it out, there's a really cool book called the humanure handbook. Um, I've definitely had humanure at my house for Uh, many years. Um, There's also another system if you like flushing toilets better and you're not into like having a bucket that you have to deal with all the time. um, There's something called the Watson Wick. Um, Integrating worms with the Watson Wick, I highly recommend, but it's using a flushing toilet that actually composts instead of putting it into a septic. Um, But aerobic septic systems are basically the same thing. So if you can have an aerobic septic system as opposed to anaerobic, so aerobic with air, um, that's definitely a great way to go too. Um, but I think it is really important for us to figure out how to get our waste back into the soil, um, because that's where all the minerals go that we're not absorbing. And so our, our soils are really lacking in minerals. So I think that that's really important. Um, you definitely need to make sure that it's totally composted and we Mm -hmm. usually wait two years before using it. And that goes out on fruit trees and things like that. Um, yeah, well, this
1: is two episodes in a row where we've talked about human waste. And I promise this is not a
0: recurring thing in the <laughs> show normally, but it so shows the importance of it, of using it. It is important. And it yeah. is funny how it's like taboo to talk about it, but it's like everybody does it every day. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah. <laughs>
1: well, is there anything else we haven't touched on um, overall with permaculture that you want to tell our listeners?
0: Um, I mean, there's so many things that I could talk about, but I'm trying to think, I mean, soil, I did talk about soil a little bit, um, but that's a whole another subject too, is just making sure that you are building up your, if you're growing food, just I'll reemphasize, you know, building up your soil first, um, having plenty of compost and mulch is a big deal, um, Yeah, I think we covered all the bases, pretty much. And, you know, I'll just reach out to your listeners. And if anybody is feeling overwhelmed, or just in general wants help, or has any questions, I'm definitely available to help. Um, And if you're in the Austin area, let me know if you need help specifically, and I can come out and um, help you out via consultation if you want. So. Yeah, great. What are some
1: resources you would share with our listeners who want to learn more?
0: Yeah, um, there, let's see, there's so many books, but Gaia's Garden is a really great beginner permaculture book, um, Earth User's Guide to Permaculture Design by Rosemary Morrow, also a great book, um, in terms of rainwater, Rainwater Harvesting by Brad Lancaster is really great, um, Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets is really great in terms of soil, um, the um what was it called barefoot architecture is a good natural building resource um what else what else I already said the humanure handbook that's um, another soil book that's like my favorite soil book and I don't know why I can't think of it I can see the cover in my head but not the name maybe I'll send it to you if it comes to me but
1: okay yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll is add it to the to the list for sure um and if folks want to become certified or do what you do how, how do they do that
0: um it's quite a long process but it's worth it. And, um, but I would definitely start with a permaculture design course locally. Um, any that you can go to locally and in person is going to be the most valuable way more than doing the ones online. Of course, the ones online are useful, but there's nothing like connecting with the community locally and being able to have locally specific knowledge given to you is huge. Um, so that, um, Getting a mentor, finding an established professional that's participating in this work and either working with them remotely or in person um, is huge. I definitely had um, multiple mentors for many years before I started doing this and selling myself professionally. Um, I even took multiple design courses and teacher trainings and things like that before I started um, working professionally. so, yeah, that's that's where I would start for sure.
1: Is there a national or international website or database that people can go
0: to or just kind of Google yeah, permaculture? Jeff, near me? Jeff Lawton has attempted to create I think it's called Permaculture International um, and Jeff is G-E-O-F-F. Lawton l a w t o n um he's definitely a big powerhouse of information but it's not it's not complete by any means permaculture is certainly a grassroots organized uh, system and there's definitely there could be more infrastructure in that way um but usually if you just search permaculture in the name of your city online you can find some good stuff yeah
1: well i i incidentally did search permaculture in ireland and and in- found quite a few
0: hits. So yeah, I bet. it's it's worldwide. It's everywhere. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean it started in Australia, so but it's yeah. all over the world for sure. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's neat how it, it spreads so quickly. It must it must be a pretty good
0: program if everyone's catching on. <laughs> there you go. And that's one thing actually that I do want to mention at the end here. It's kind of a little in cap to say just that, you know, permaculture was started by Bill Mollison but all of the information that he has provided to everybody which is an incredible system so much functionality there but all of that knowledge came from the indigenous peoples that he went to go visit so all of this information about mimicking nature and all of these different things the core of it comes from our indigenous peoples and that's not often cited it's definitely not cited in the permaculture design manual and so i just you know out of respect for these people just want to say that and recognize that um that that's where this knowledge is really being passed down from so
1: yeah definitely important and um undervalued uh for sure and something that I'm glad to see there is more of a an effort to kind of get back to some of those um indigenous you know mindsets because they definitely know what they're doing they do <laughs> mm.
0: Absolutely. And I'm really grateful still for Bill for, you know, cause I don't know that I would have that any of us, you know, in the West would have been able to take advantage of this knowledge and put it to use if it weren't for what he did. But at the same time, I also agree that it should be, you know, said loud and clear like where, where that information came from for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely.
1: Well, um, If there's nothing else, I guess we'll move on to our green life hack, which is the part of the show where we just give a life hack for people who want to do something to live more sustainably. Um, You know, uh, it can be a product um, and something that you do, a mindset, something. So um,
0: did you want to start us out? Yeah, sure. I mean... I kind of already said this, but if there's one singular thing you can do to make the greatest impact on your own life, it's definitely buying as much food locally as you possibly can. So here in Austin, there's a really incredible company called Farmhouse Delivery. I utilize their services. Um, it is a little bit more expensive and you kind of have to, you know, be at peace with that it's kind of like instead of paying more on your health you know health care you pay more for the food that you buy to prevent as a preventative measure you know that like proactive situation instead of on the defense kind of situation again but um yeah um just buying as much food as you possibly can locally is definitely the biggest life hack that I can personally recommend for anybody yeah
1: migraine life hack kind of echoes that in that it's um you know it's the holidays and we're coming up on uh, black Friday and Christmas, depending on when you're listening to this, you may be listening after black Friday, but um, my hack is either don't participate in the mass consumption of black Friday, or if you do shop local shop, you know, Etsy or, or just try to shop with people who are doing um, making the things themselves or selling them, you know, in the local community, as opposed to lining Jeff Bezos's pockets and, helping him fly to the moon or whatever. Um right. yeah. And, you know, of course reducing the environmental impact, yada yada yada. But um yeah, I think I've really in the last few years tried to cut back on my online and Amazon shopping and it um, you know, not only is my pocketbook thanking me, but like I just you know, you just feel less stressed when you stop worrying about keeping up with the sales and buying things and stuff. So that's my Absolutely. challenge to people <laughs> this holiday season all about general, it so
0: yep and make your own stuff I've yeah. committed to that for Christmas is I did that many years ago Is like I mean I still buy some stuff for people locally but for the most part I make a, a lot of stuff and I love to give that and it just feels it just feels better mm. it's more heart it's more genuine and so that's another challenge yeah. figure out how you to make it always have to tips. be store-bought <laughs> for sure right, right. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, where can we find you online, Taylor? If people want to learn more, if they want to reach out to you, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Totally. You can always check out my website. It's just Austinperm dot com. Um, and we are on Facebook and Instagram too, if you want to connect there. So um you can always reach out to me via email too. It's just Taylor T A E L O R at Austinperm dot com. So Okay. And your yeah. uh, social medias are all Austin Permaculture Guild. Yep.
1: Okay. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, you can find me here on sustainably geeky. I am not currently on the other shows on our channel as often anymore since there's a big time difference, but um, we are under the epically geeky channel. So you can catch me on there sometimes and marginally geeky, which is the book club sometimes even less. Um, And then of course you can find me on social media at het's going to be me. And then the show can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sustainably Geeky. Um, We're also on all of the streaming sites and YouTube. And we would love if you would subscribe, give us a five-star rating, a like, a share. Give us all the love um, because it really helps us get out there and more people see us. So thank you guys for listening. And if you have uh, any suggestions for future episodes, feel free to send us a message and let us know what you think. Um, Taylor, thanks again for being on. We really appreciate it. And I've learned so much as I always do. Um, and best of luck, you know, in the the coming season and, and getting, uh, you know, permaculture out there into the world.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really had a good time and hope your listeners enjoy it too. Yeah. Have a good night, everybody. Bye. <laughs>